We had a moving inauguration day. It was peaceful and it had many stirring moments. One of the things we'll be talking about on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Chris Warnowski, Jane Cahoon, and Laura Johnston. And I imagine all of you have some reflections to share on what you saw yesterday when you should have been working. <laughs> <laughs> I was working. I was multitasking. I, you know, Me too. I mean, how I, do you not watch that when you're in the news business yeah, and you're pulling okay. your leg? I would expect you to make sure you're watching <laughs> that. And so you can discuss it now. Laura Johnston, you were really moved by the poem. I was. Amanda Gorman was just incredible. I found her words just stirring. Like I was multitasking as Jane was, and I had to stop what I was doing when I heard her say, even as we grieved, we grew. Even as we hurt, we hoped. I, I just loved the way that she put it. And she captured this feeling of a nation, like on the brink of something who has been through so much this last year or four years. And she just shone there up on the 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 platform. I was so very impressed with her. And to be 22 years old and to be able to do that, I just, that was my shining moment. I I don't know how anybody that young can have that much presence and that much poise. I would have been a basket case at that age. I marvel. I just watched that with my jaw on the floor because she owned it and, and really was the most dynamic moment of the day. Jane, what were your thoughts? Well, I, I just say about Amanda Gorman, it really takes something special when you when you're stealing the show from Lady Gaga and (laughs) and J-Lo and Garth Brooks but um you know just the overall feeling of the day I I don't know a a friend of mine sent me something saying you know Biden's like like macaroni and cheese you know he's just like the comfort food that people seem to need right now you know so I I thought that kind of captured it it was just it was just uplifting the whole thing. Yeah, and it, and and his his speech was not fiery, and that's what we needed, right? The water has been boiling all around us for four years, and he and he and he lowered the temperature, and he got right to work. Chris Murnaski, you and I were talking yesterday, and you said what impressed you was this is a president that immediately went to work to do some stuff that had been missing. Yeah, I you know getting rid of the uh, the Muslim ban and and you know the Keystone Pipeline and pausing student loan interest and 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 there I mean there were just a lot of things that he did on day one that were kind of signals to people that that he he's going to try to sort of untangle the mess that was left for him. I also have to say I was impressed with with Garth Brooks wearing jeans to the inauguration. It's a real a real good signal to everybody who's been working from home wearing jeans every day. Right? <laughs> what about Bernie Sanders? <laughs> what about Bernie Sanders? Well, oh, I was laughing so hard. There were people were putting out like they were photoshopping him into different scenes. He because he dressed really casually. He had like a a parka on and these these knitted mittens and I kept seeing Bernie pop up in all these different scenes, like on the moon and, and other places. <laughs> he looked like isolated. Yeah, he, he became a meme for the day. Um, <laughs> I, I watched it with my kids and I, I found so many people on social media had taken pictures of their kids watching that as that historic moment. And then we even watched the briefing that night. And like I was talking to Chris Warnowski and I was like, it's like boring. Like, it's like nice to watch government. That's boring. Yeah. No, nobody totally was lying happy. about the size of the crowd. And, you know, and, <laughs> and, and you well, know, it, it, it's a nice, it's a nice change of pace. 
Well, the other thing is, you know, the big national crisis is the coronavirus. We hit the the, the number of 400,000 deaths on the day of Inauguration Day. And what I was impressed by was his immediate creation of a national program, which we haven't had for 10 months, 11 months. And his idea of creating mass vaccination centers and stadiums and arenas, we used to know how to do that. And that is the solution. Let's get back to that. So I'm I'm hoping that he brings a quick end to this crisis so that we can get out on July 4th, Laura Johnson, and start celebrating. Let's begin. Why has the Ohio Health Department cut off a pharmacy company from any more coronavirus vaccines? Laura Johnston, this is the kind of story that, that makes me believe we really do need mass vaccination centers like Joe Biden is talking about. When you put this into the hands of a bunch of little guys, they screw it up. What happened here? Yeah, so the state says that Specialty RX potentially mishandled 890 doses of the Moderna vaccine, and they refer the details to the Ohio State Pharmacy Board for the investigation. This company is headquartered in New Jersey, has a locations um, across the country, including Columbus. It was not part of the federal long-term care pharmacy partnership program that has been in the Ohio nursing homes, but it was given 1,500 vaccines for residents at eight long-term care facilities and at the end of last year. So they administered their first doses. They had 890 doses remaining, and then they were exploring transferring them to another provider when it was discovered that they had failed to appropriately monitor temperatures in the refrigerator and freezer. And this was something we had wondered about how this is going to happen. You know, how are these companies going to handle this? These vaccines have to be kept at very steady temperatures below zero. They don't work if they're too warm. And they, the state requires all vaccine providers to check and record the minimum and maximum temperatures of cold storage and every day. But it, they found out they weren't viable and they're going to have to coordinate with a sec, another provider for these long-term care facilities to get the second dose to these people. It's a, it's one of those things. You got one job, right? <laughs> you, you gotta, you gotta keep this thing at a certain temperature. If you don't keep it at the temperature, it spoils. It's like meat. I mean, grocery stores get this and they screwed up and it just, it, it, it's a flaw in the, the system. This is not one of the national pharmacy programs that the federal government ran to efficiently get the vaccines to nursing homes. This is something that's that's running beyond that. But it, it's it's a flaw in the Ohio system to give the vaccine to everybody and his brother to give out because there's no checks and balances to make sure they're not going to screw it up. And, you know, they, so they, they won't get any more vaccine. All the people that got it there are probably wondering that I get good vaccine and what do I do now? Um, and it really does speak to the need for a much more organized system. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How much is security for the Ohio State House costing as Governor Mike DeWine works to protect it from threats of violence? Chris Ranowski, the, the threats seem very real based on what we've learned from court documents, particularly the threat to Columbus. So you do need the security. But, man, it's costing a lot of money. Right. We're nearing the million dollar mark for security um, that basically began last week, late last week, when when the governor activated the Ohio National Guard and ordered uh, state buildings down in downtown Columbus closed as part of the heightened security as a result of those threats. And the you know, I, I believe the security was through yesterday. I don't know if, if there's any any sort of lingering threat that's going to have him extend that. I, I, you know, maybe he'll answer that question today when he, he addresses the state. 
but this did, you're right. It did come at, 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 he, he did claim that there were some credible threats and, and some things that, that concerned him and other law enforcement officials throughout the state. Um, but it ended up being kind of all, all, all about nothing. You know, if you, if you look around the United States, there really wasn't any, any sort of upheaval or trouble or any other attempt at insurrection at any capital. Um, so, but you know, you have to take these things seriously. Um, but the total, the, the total, the actual total is a little under $850,000, but that number does not include what the state highway patrol has, has spent as far as their, their, their role in this. Um, and those figures probably won't be available uh, until they calculate their payroll later this month. It was fascinating to watch the social media kind of reaction yesterday by the people that, that are interested in these protests, the kind of crazy people that thought Donald Trump would take control of the government and jail all the Democrats as it became clearer and clearer through the day as he marched off the stage to the sounds of the village people for his final exit, that he wouldn't, that that Donald Trump was not their savior, that he wasn't going to put all the Democrats in jail and turn it into a dictatorship and find pedophiles throughout government, that they started to take shots at him and call him a shill. And I wonder if the weakening of their resolve there reduces the threat. You, you don't know because the, you, you need really good intelligence with these folks in case they pop up again. The pockets are there. They plotted to kidnap the Michigan governor in Ohio. They plotted to hit the state house in Ohio. Um, so if you're Mike DeWine, it's a tough call. How do you decide when to stand down the security? It's, you know, I, I think you err on the side of caution and, and you eat the expense because, you know, the, the alternative is, what you saw in DC, which is five people died, people got hurt. And, you know, then you have to expend a lot more in law enforcement resources going out and trying to find all these yahoos. So oh, it makes it easier when they put all the pictures and admissions of their guilt on social media. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, doing it for social media clout and, <laughs> and wearing a mask and saying, here's where I'm at uh, with a geolocating uh, tag is probably not the best way to do it. Um, but you do, I mean, you do bring up a point, you know, we're, it, but but I think what's concerning is is that some people are going to move on. You know, there was a certain amount of okay, well, nothing happened. I guess I guess he was a liar and 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 all of this was BS, and we'll, we'll just we'll just move on with our lives. But then you know, there's another part of it that kind of digs deeper down into it and is easy, much easier to radicalize. And so you know, the thread doesn't go away. And 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 you know, I hope as as a country, this is something that we 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 think that we can stop paying attention to just because we have a different president. Well, and part of it is that the, that the social media platforms that have been gasoline on this fire have to be more responsible. It's, you know, we took down our commenting platform because we found we were hosting irresponsible nonsense and we don't want to be that. That's not who we are. We're a responsible media platform. And, and I think everybody needs to adhere to that instead of providing that gasoline. Anyway, we'll see what happens. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What's the Ohio Chief Justice's argument for removing party affiliations from all races for judge in the state? Jane Cahoon, this has been a, a chief uh, drive of hers for some years. It comes up now because there's been a lot of discussion of late about how there are no party that we have party affiliations in the primary we haven't had them in the on the ballot <clears throat> in the final ballot it makes no sense um, her her push is there shouldn't be any because party doesn't affect judicial decisions but but what 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 is her argument pragmatically for this 
Yeah, Chief Justice Maureen O'Connor is really sensitive to the perception that that judges' rulings uh, might be influenced by partisanship. She's really pushed back on that vigorously, and she's even criticized her own party, the Republican Party, for suggesting that that rulings might be influenced by party affiliation. But anyway, in Ohio, as you said, the judicial candidates can compete for the party nomination during the primary, but during the general election, you don't see the the party tags um, by their names. So she she thinks that that should be totally nonpartisan, and and she just says that there are better ways to to judge candidates to like their records on the bench and and their explanation of why they want to move up to a higher bench, uh, and and that you know, the judicial candidates can explain to voters complicated cases that they, that they ruled on carefully and, and they can educate voters, uh, you know, about their rulings and their experience. But, you know, there, there are a couple of points that, that really have to be made about this. Number one, people don't tend to, the voters anyway, don't tend to educate themselves much about judicial races. This is a a long time problem where groups have been formed to try to, you know, get the ratings out there and get more information out there about the candidates. But the fact is people just don't pay that much attention to the, to the judicial races. And the second thing is that even, even though the party affiliations aren't on the general election ballot, the parties and these outside groups spend tons of money, especially in races like the Ohio Supreme Court to promote one candidate or the other. So you got a lot of party noise going, going on there. So, um, but anyway, the, the change that O'Connor is proposing would require a constitutional amendment in Ohio. So the bar for that is, is really high and, and just frankly, doesn't seem all that, that likely. Well, if you want to talk in the grand scheme of what's good for the world, she raises a good point that, that you should base these decisions on, on what's best. But yeah, she was asked questions like, look, if voters don't educate themselves, why deprive them of one piece of information that, that might help them? And, you know, and, you know, as you, as you know, the, the, the financing of this by is all based on party. I mean, there were discussions this year by people saying we've got to keep the Republican majority on the Ohio Supreme Court. So if party didn't matter, why would people be working so hard for that? So she sees the world with the rainbows and the unicorns, but the real world doesn't work like that. In the real world, the parties are working real hard to have their people be in control. And I, I just don't see how you get there. I mean, I, I completely agree with her on, 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 you know, the 30,000 foot level, but I just right. don't see a way to get there. And she, she kind of expressed frustration when we asked the question that way, like, yeah, you're right. You know, Citizens United, <laughs> as long as that's there, the, the third party fundraisers will, will do their, their business. So I, I just don't see this happening anytime soon. She's term limited, right? She's done in the next. Um, it's not so much term limited, but age limited. I believe that she can't run again because um, I think she's either past 70 or is going to turn 70. So she's done in two years then? It'll be in two years that she's up? It is. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, because they're already talking about a couple of justices on the court who want to run for chief justice. I say two years, but it's November 2022. Okay. Right, right. Sorry. It's a noble cause, and I'm, I'm glad we took the time to talk to her. I just wish I saw a path. It's this week in the CLE.
What's the good news for people who regularly drive on the moonscapes we know as Coventry Boulevard, Ivanhoe Road, Lakeshore Boulevard, and others? Lord Johnston, the county put out a list of roads that they're hoping to resurface in the next two years. I'm familiar with some of them, and man, there's less road there than there is pothole. Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like a lot of this list, at least for the bigger projects, is on the east side. So, uh, But the good news is that they're getting resurfaced. A Cuyahoga County Council Committee on Wednesday signed off on a bulk of these road projects planned for 2021 and 2022. Um, they're portions of major arteries, well-traveled routes in 27 cities and villages. So that's roughly half of the county. Uh, the projects still need full approval by the full council. Um and some of them are going to be rehabilitating intersections, but mostly the resurfacing. So take Coventry Road between Fair Hill and Euclid Heights Boulevard in Cleveland Heights. That's a $1.8 million project. The county's going to pay $1.4 million. The city's going to pay the rest. And the work could start in March. Green Road is another big one, Superior Road. So, yeah, good news for people who travel those. Well, I'm familiar with a couple of them. Jane Cahoon, I'm sure you're familiar with that stretch of Coventry. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Choose up tires and hubcaps. I mean, I, it, for years, I've been wondering, how does this exist? And then Ivanhoe, for anybody who drives down toward the food bank from from the, the east suburbs, <laughs> you go down that road and it's it's I'd rather have a dirt road. It's just so bad. So good selection by the uh, committee on the county council. Hopefully the full council will approve it and we'll all drive a lot smoother. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. It's not something that is appetizing now, but will restaurants in Cleveland be able to expand onto sidewalks and other outdoor spaces this spring and summer like they did last year to cope with the pandemic? Chris Wanowski, I, I thought there was some discussion at some point about making this permanent because people liked it so much, but but at least there's talk now of maybe expanding it. Yeah, the council voted Wednesday to extend into uh, all the way into the fall a program uh, that allows restaurants to temporarily expand seating into public spaces during the pandemic. The program is actually set to expire June 1st, which means that council needed to renew it if they wanted to, to keep doing it. And it was created initially, like you said, to provide restaurants space to add tables while they're trying to discourage people from gathering indoors. The legislation approved Wednesday would extend the program to November 1st uh, and would still need to be signed by the mayor to take effect. We've had this since June, and and it, and it has been an aid to, to some restaurants that have either – they've greatly expanded their ability to seat people outdoors. Some have – some have gone the igloo route, you know, there, you know, you've, you've sort of seen it if you drive around or walk around. Um, so it, it, it has been, it has been helpful. And as many as 25 Cleveland restaurants have been signed up for the program. And, and so, you know, this will give other restaurants an opportunity to maybe take part in it if they, if they didn't uh, during the last round of it. Laura Johnston, you've been all over social media taking advantage of these kinds of things. Do you feel safe doing it? Yes. <laughs> it, it gives you an escape it gets you out of the house i mean know? honestly i haven't done it like I've, I've eaten outside on patios in the summer i have not had the igloo experience mostly because they're expensive um but i would be happy to go back to a patio once it is not freezing and i have done apri ski on a on a picnic table at a ski hill so i'm happy with that so being outside you don't feel any risk from the coronavirus like you might if you were inside no, I mean, I think when we looked at those summer numbers, um, if you look back, they were, you know, in the thousands, we thought it like, like 1000 ish, it, it was climbing. 
But no, I, I feel like when you're outside, it's pretty safe. That doesn't mean I don't wear a mask outside, but it just, it relieves a lot of that pressure. Okay. Well, it's good news for restaurants. I'm, I'm sure they're hurting in the winter, but as the weather warms up and that's only a few months away, they might be able to make some dime back. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is Cavs owner Dan Gilbert, the guy who led the charge to bring casino gambling to Ohio, completely out of the gambling business now? Jen Cahoon, Rich Exner put together a story on this that had some some interesting aspects to it. The people who are now behind the Jack Casino are interesting people and have a new location. What's all the word here? Yeah, Gilbert has rather quietly sold his ownership interest in Jack Entertainment, the the uh, entity that operates both the downtown Cleveland Casino and the Thistledown Racino in North Randall. So his family of companies is is no longer affiliated with Jack. So I guess in December, the Jack Entertainment management team completed the acquisition of all of Gilbert's shares in the company. And they had pr- uh, purchased a controlling interest in the company earlier in the year. So they, this Jack management team is continue, is going to continue to remain in place. And a guy named Matt Cullen is going to continue to serve as chairman of the board. And a guy named Mark Dunkison will continue to be chief executive officer. And um, they, they have relocated their, their home office team to Cleveland. So they say that makes Jack the only Ohio based gaming operator across the state's 11 gaming properties. So yeah, it's been a long, you know, Gilbert, that was in 2009, I think, when he led the effort to, um, to legalize casino gambling here in Ohio. But, you know, he, he suffered a stroke in 2019 and we haven't seen that much of him in public. So I don't know if that's part of it or, you know, just something, what, what the decision was based on. Well, really. it, it raises some interesting questions. If, if the stroke has, has disabled him, is he divesting of his investments to move on, which would put the Cavs in play? Or is he getting out of gambling because he wants to invest in something else where tidy gambling might hurt him? There's been talk that he might be interested in having some sort of ownership in the Indians, and that might be harder to do if you're tied to gambling. It's hard to say. They've yeah. been very mum about it. It's not something that they've been public about, but I, I could see this going both ways. Even though he had the stroke, he's still a fairly young man. I don't think he's 60 yet. He's around 60, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's got, you know, he's got time left to, to be a business guy. Be interesting to see where it goes. It's this week in the CLE. What are we hearing from people in their 80s or their children about how things are going so far in getting coronavirus vaccines? Laura Johnston, we've been getting anecdotal information. I've been hearing from people who have said it's gone pretty smoothly so far. Uh, we're putting together a story. What What's the early word here? Yeah, I was really surprised by how smoothly some people told me it was going. One woman actually said smooth as silk. People have been able to make appointments mostly through their medical providers, whether that's university hospitals, the Cleveland Clinic, or Metro Health. Some people say they're, they or their parents have gotten their first shot. They have their second appointment scheduled. There are plenty of questions out there, too, of people who say they've registered at a bunch of places, they haven't heard back. But I really thought we would hear more headbanging frustration about like waiting in line or mixed signals. or But it seems like these systems that the hospitals and their doctor um, networks at least have set up with my chart or whatever UH calls theirs, that they're, they've reached out to people, people have been able to make appointments, and then they go in and get their shot. So 
obviously there's not enough vaccine for everybody to get it as soon as they want it. Um, but people are not really complaining that much about it. Well, this first phase involves people 80 and older, which is a small population. Mm -hmm. The younger you go, obviously you're going to have more people. But the people we've largely heard from, and we've heard from some that said it's been a nightmare, but for most, it's like, yeah, I called up, I registered my appointments tomorrow. It'll be interesting to see whether they can maintain that pacing when the age drops to 75, 70 and, and lower. Um, we're still doing reporting on this, so we'll have to see what we get overall. But it's nice to hear that some element of Mike DeWine's program appears to be working. I, I do want to point out that we've mostly heard from people who are, you know, are texting us through our sub our subtext text messaging accounts or who would email us. So these people, by definition, are comfortable with technology or have a loved one who is and have some savvy when it comes to it. I don't know that everybody is this comfortable with the system. Well, and we've talked earlier that the program like the one set up really puts the have-nots into a, a more difficult position because of the digital divide and because of the transportation issues and things like that. You would expect people in poverty to have a harder time than, than people, like you say, who are digitally competent. Could we'll I see. jump in here? You know, a lot of people over 80 are in nursing homes. Um, maybe not a lot. I mean, I don't know what the percentage is, but, you know, the they've already carried out this vaccination program in nursing homes. They're, you know, I think they're just about done with that and that's gone pretty well. So I think they've already hit a lot of the 80 plus crowd through that effort. Yeah, but that wasn't run by the state. That was run by the federal government. I realize that. I mean, so he doesn't get any credit for that, even though he tries to take it. I mean, he did try to take it. Right. I'm week. just saying that, you know. Yeah. No, I and, and that reduces the number of 80-year-olds that need to be served by Mike DeWine's program. Hey, look, we'll see how it goes. I, I'm, I'm heartened to hear from so many people that they're able to get in and get set up. And, and if that continues all the way through the 1B categories, then, you know, applause for Mike DeWine. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What percentage of Cleveland hotel rooms were empty in 2020? Chris Ranesky, this is kind of a staggering number. What's it all about? Uh, hotel occupancy in Cleveland plunged uh, to pretty bad depths in 2020 in what numerous uh, observers describe as the worst year ever uh, for, for the hotel industry. Uh, uh, hotel occupancy, which is the percentage of rooms that are full in the greater Cleveland market uh, was 37% for the year, which is down from 61% in 2019, according to this travel research firm, STR. Um, the, the news in downtown Cleveland was even worse, where occupancy was just 31%, uh, down from 68% a year earlier. And and I think what what is kind of terrifying to the travel and hospitality industry is that that Ohio isn't even near one of the the worst uh, states, and and Cleveland is certainly not one of the worst cities that have been hit by this. You know, some of the some of the cities that rely on on tourism a lot more as part of their their economy are have been devastated uh, to a degree that is that is much worse than us. But this organization and and others in the in the travel and tourism industry have been lobbying uh, Ohio Governor. Mike DeWine in recent months to loosen rules for future business meetings and other gather gatherings so that groups can, uh, so that, you know, group planning and conferences can continue. But the alternative is a continued loss in business. It, you know, I mean, this is, this is something that sort of 
you know, it's a, it, it has a, almost a trickle down effect to, to borrow a phrase from bad economics. It, you know, I mean, when, when this gets affected, our restaurants get affected, our museums get affected, our, our, you know, every, every other aspect of, of our community gets affected when, you know, you don't have people traveling in and, and it's spending time in the city. So this is, this is not good. Yeah. And it's sad that Cleveland seems to be lagging even Columbus and Cincinnati. I get Columbus. It's the, it's got OSU and it's got state government, but, but it's, uh, it's sad. And they're, they're saying that this quarter will probably be worse than any quarter last year before it starts to come back. You're listening to this week in the CLE. All right, Jane, we have a uh, uh, Mike DeWine briefing today. Are we expecting anything? I'll bet he talks about vaccines. What do you think? <laughs> what are the chances that we're going to see somebody get a shot in the arm uh, again on TV? I wonder. <laughs> yeah, can't get enough of that. Oh, if um, I see one more of those, don't get me started here. Well, it would be nice to get a global update of how it's going in the first week of the 1B group, though. I mean, it would be nice if he could, you know, give us some real numbers about, you know, because he's got 800 providers who can keep track of that. I'm sure he'll say something about that. And we'll let's hope. Okay. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. We'll be back tomorrow to wrap up the week of news.